that it is Thursday, May 6, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm Rios Patrick Auger, and today we're going to cover all things Endeavor IPO. So if you missed the news last week, Endeavor has gone public. You can purchase shares of their stock through any reputable stockbroker. And since then, I've been bombarded with a myriad of questions from what is an IPO? How does the process work? What does it mean for the UFC? What's with the stock price going up 25% in the first week? Is that a good sign, bad sign, all of that stuff? Dana White has famously said that if the UFC went public, he would quit or be fired. Is that the case in this scenario? So with all these different types of questions I've been getting, I figured it just made sense to take an entire episode to break down every angle of it. So I'm going to discuss what an IPO is, how the process generally works, what the market conditions currently are, Endeavor's history with IPOs, because this isn't the first time they've attempted one. I'll look at their fundamentals, the overall market and how that's going, what it means for the UFC as a whole, especially operations. Is Dana White going to be fired or is he going to quit? All that stuff. I'll tackle that. And we'll just break it down from every angle so you guys get an idea of what this means for the UFC moving forward. I'm also going to tackle a fan request brought up by Mark Fellow, shout out to Mark, who wanted to know about the financials of a UFC live event, specifically a bigger event like a pay-per-view the size of UFC 261. So we're going to break down you know, what the event costs are, what the fighters make, what the general profit margin is for those events, as well as compare it to some of the smaller events like UFC Fight Night Tulsa or something of that nature, and really take a look at you know how much profit is the UFC getting out of those events? Is it always a profit? We'll tackle that as well. So that is the episode for today. There will still be timestamps because I'm going to break down the IPO stuff in sections, but that's really what this whole episode is about, is that IPO and then the end fan request. So let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. So first off, what is an IPO? An IPO is an initial public offering, which allows a private company to go public by selling shares of its stock to, you guessed it, the general public. Now, why does a company do this? Well, usually one reason and one reason alone. And that is to raise large amounts of cash. You might also hear it as raising large amounts of capital, but really it's all about raising large amounts of cash quickly. Let me give you an example of, of why a company does this. Let's say I am a startup that works on electric cars and I've incurred a bunch of debt, you know, trying to get the latest research and development going on the best type of parts to make the cheapest electric car that still has the longest you know, battery life and all of that. And I'm spending money on advertisement because I'm trying to fight off Ford and, and General Motors and Tesla because they're all in the electric car space now. And I'm trying to kind of gain my share. And I've done several rounds of series and funding and investing where that means I've gone to private equity and to angel investors and, you know, pitched why they should buy shares of my stock and give me money and what they can expect on returns. And I've done that several times, but I have a lot of debt and I, I really think at this point I need a lot of money so that I can pay down some of this debt and you know maybe look at acquiring a smaller company that I really think is going to help me acquire parts for way cheap and, and allow me to build cars even faster and grow my, my name out there. So I, I do an initial public offering because that's a way that I can you know raise hundreds of millions of dollars very quickly. And, you know, the way that basically works, again, if, if you know investing at all, is Joe Schmo has probably heard of my company. 
and pays $20 for a share and I get that $20 and it's really, you know, so that he can hold the certificate of stock, which now it's all digital, but all about, I continue to get this money and I use that huge, you know, $240 million I raised from the IPO to bring the value of my company up so that his share price and his stock certificate becomes worth more than what he bought it for. And he can then trade it for a profit at $40 a share, so on and so forth. And you know, if you're doing particularly well, maybe as a company, I cut a dividend every quarter that allows them to get, you know, for every share that they hold a dollar or two. So that starts to add up and starts to pay him back without him even having to trade in the stock. That's just the basic, you know, high level fundamentals of investing. That's why people buy stocks. That's why you have a 401k so that you can take part of your paycheck, invest it in the market, allow it to grow, get those gains and returns so that you can then happily retire all that fun stuff. That's what an IPO is. It is a company raising large amounts of cash quickly and, and putting up with the scrutiny that comes with going from private to public. Because most privately traded companies will tell you, and anybody, you know, an executive at a privately traded company will tell you, if you can go to an angel investor or you can go to private equity instead of going public, it almost always makes sense to do so because you there are a lot of perks with being a privately traded company. And once you go public, you now are at the scrutiny of having to fill out certain public financial disclosures and reports. You have to do a lot more, you know, earnings calls that you're, you're much more publicly scrutinized by Wall Street, by, you know, the public in general, because they're going to be buying your stock and wondering what's going on. It, there are so many layers and things added on, especially if you get certain voting blocks of so many people acquire your stock and you get enough shares that then they want board of directors. There's, it can become a gigantic thing. It's really, you know, it's why it's a whole industry, right? So the main reason why a company decides to go public is to raise large amounts of cash. That is key to know. There are some crazy exceptions to that rule, but in general, that's really what it's all about, is raising large amount of cash for the company. All right, so what is the process of going public, of issuing an IPO? We're gonna break this down now before we look at Endeavor specifically, because as you'll see later on in the video, it's important to know how this particular process works because a lot of people don't understand it. So what happens in an IPO is I as a company don't actually go to Joe Schmo on the street directly. Right? I don't go to you and say, hey, I've got this company. Here's a certificate of stock. No, not nowadays anyway. Instead, I go to an underwriter, which is usually a large investment bank. I believe in Endeavor's case, it was Morgan Stanley, um, Goldman Sachs. Uh, I'm not sure which one they ended up going with. Goldman Sachs was what they originally went with in 2019. So that may be what they went back to here in 2021. But what happens then is that the underwriter to kind of hedge some risk and to kind of, you know, you know, basically make sure they're not taking on the brunt of all of this. They kind of form a little group of other underwriters. They end up working with UBS and let's say it's Goldman Sachs. They might end up working with UBS and Morgan Stanley and oh, a ton of other ones, uh, you know, Deutsche Bank, all, all these different places to get a feel for, you know, do people want to buy this stock? And we're not talking about just, again, people Joe Schmo. 
people. They go, they you get this underwriting kind of group, and they go to institutional investors and special retail clients. Usually privileged retail clients, they're very special, but you know, they go to the, those guys. And that's really who's buying up the initial shares of the stock. So if I have a company and I'm doing an IPO, my first selling of my shares does not go to you, the general average Joe. It goes to these institutional investors and special retail clients through this underwriting group that forms. That is very important. Because when you look at target prices, right, which you'll see if you look at any IPO and it says, or upcoming IPO, it'll say, you know, target share price of this. And in Endeavor's case, I believe it was $24. That's the price I am selling as Endeavor at $24 a share to the institutional investors. What then happens is, is that they buy up all those shares, right? Buy up a bunch of them anyway. And then come 9 a.m. the first day of trading, when it's, you know, a public, I, the average Joe, go to one of these institutions and buy the share from them. And that's when you end up getting the fluctuating share price, where it starts at $24 and it may go up to 26, may go down to 22, what have you. But the important and key piece here is that when a company first does an IPO, it's a rare scenario where they're basically setting a price and their initial sale is what they mostly get in terms of money. Now, as time goes on, as they continue to, you know, once once the shares get out there, right? And you also have executives guaranteed so many shares. That's why a lot of CEOs and a lot of executives have huge stock sharing options. And that's part of their package because they're incentivized to make that stock price go up. You know, and, and employees that were in the privately tr traded company, you know, so Endeavor did would have had stock as well. But really, that initial you know sale, the IPO, is to institutional investors at a set price. And especially the first couple of weeks, whether that goes up or down, it kind of shows whether or not the company picked the right share price. And we'll get into that more, especially looking at where Endeavor's stock price has gone. But that is a key bit of information to know because too many people think IPO is, oh, I'm Endeavor and you know I am selling it directly to you. Yes, you could buy it through Fidelity or you could buy it through Robinhood or you could buy it through whatever, but you know, I'm I'm here is the share of stock and it's me to you and, and the broker and that's it. Too many people think that's how an IPO works. That's not how it works. It goes through the underwriters, they then work together to find institutional investors and pre you know retail clients, special retail clients who then buy up most of the shares from the company and then sell it to the public. So that's the process of the IPO. And again, whole point of this is so that Endeavor ends up getting a bunch of cash right away. In Endeavor's case, they did it because they have huge amounts of debt. If you want to check out some of the articles I've written for The Body Lock, I've also written one or two for SureDog, where I break down just how massive their debt is and how it's only gotten worse because of the pandemic and you know the debt covenants getting really dicey back in 2019, which we'll cover here in a minute in terms of Endeavor's previous attempt. But if you want to look into that, you know, Endeavor has 
gotten just so much debt that they needed to pay that down. And this is a fast way to raise hundreds of million dollars to pay down those debts and make sure that they're still good. Because, you know, running a giant valuated, <laughs> value, valued at $10 billion is what Endeavor is right now. And running a giant company like that, you can't have too much debt. You've got to have enough revenue to pay it all down. So that's really why I believe Endeavor went public in the first place. And that's the IPO process and what an IPO is. All right, now with that all in mind, let's take a stroll down memory lane to 2019. Endeavor was originally slated to do their IPO back in 2019, around the time of the unicorn IPO downfall, so to speak. And what I mean by that was it was a time where at the beginning of 2019 and through 2018, there had been a lot of investment in these unicorn IPOs and Wall Street was just kind of sick of it. They weren't performing well. They were losing a lot of money. WeWork really imploded. That was a very you know big factor in you know what happened with those unicorn IPOs and Wall Street's taste for investing money in those types of companies. Where yeah, this massive valuation for WeWork that ends up you know getting cut just slashed to to way less than it was originally thought. You had to buy out the owner of WeWork. It was a mess. And a lot of institutional investors got, you know, got really like taken aback and it became a whole thing. And if you look at Peloton and Uber and Lyft, who all came out around that same time as well, that Endeavor was planning to come out, they also, you know, first day of trading, kind of have performed poorly, according to Wall Street and, you know, a lot of institutions. They Their share price came in at a target share of, you know, X and then just went down. Just lots of losses right off the bat. Now, here's the thing, right? Especially with, with those three companies I just mentioned, Peloton, Uber, and Lyft. You got to go back to that IPO process I just talked about. Because Peloton ended up, you know, having a target share of, I forget exactly what it was, but let's just say for the sake of it, let's say it's $20. And then when the shares hit the market, the share price dropped, you know, 25, 30%, something like that. So the institutional investors lost out on the money. Keep in mind the Peloton got most of that money up front from, from the institutional investors and from the underwriting group. So it was really the underwriting investment banks and the institutional investors who, took the loss, hence all the bad publicity, hence all the Wall Street doesn't have an appetite for it because they got screwed, not Peloton. Now it's not great for Peloton because that hurts you know, your company brand image. Later on, again, as those shares get diluted and you're looking at you know, possibly buying back shares, doing other things, becomes a whole thing. You want your share price to go up, right? As an executive, you now want, once it's hit the market, been out there for a while, you now want that to go up. You wanna get, you know, raise more capital if you have to. So the reason again that I focus on this is when it came to Endeavor's IPO in 2019, institutional investors had lost their appetite. They originally had targeted a share price of $30 to $32 and it dropped down to 26 to $29 and eventually they pulled it. They pulled it last minute in 2019, Endeavor did. And it's because 
institutional investors looked at the financials and they saw what had happened with other companies with poor financials, which make no mistake, Endeavor did not have good financials in 2019. They, they were bad. They owned 50.1% of the UFC, which is a, you know, a big boost, but the rest of their city areas and everything else were losing a lot of money. They were, they were very much in the red. And they had just, Wall Street and the institutional investors had just gone through this with several other companies where they, they lost money because the target share price came in higher than what the public had an appetite for. And because of that, they said, you know what, I'm not gonna pay 30 to $32 for these shares endeavor. No, uh, 26, 29, nah, I don't really wanna pay that either. And as Endeavor did their roadshow, they realized, and they went to these institutional investors and Goldman Sachs pitched, hey, buy Endeavor stock now, it's gonna go up. They realized now, nah, a lot of these places are saying, nope, I've seen your financials. I just went through this with Peloton. No way. Not going to do it. And so they pulled it. Because if those institutional investors aren't willing to pay the 26 to 29 or 30, 32, then that means you're getting less money, right? And you only get one IPO. After that, it's, it's all out on the public. So you're trying to raise X amount of dollars. Endeavor was trying to raise $600 million in 2019. And... That number just kept going down and they realized, well, if we pull the trigger on this IPO, they're going to get a lot less than $600 million. So they pulled it last minute. So what changed? Because obviously between 2019 and 2021, things didn't get better for Endeavor overall, right? You had the pandemic, which and almost all of Endeavor's subsidiary companies require live audiences and live events. Live sporting events specifically is really, you know, the space they're in. And he had a lot of sports canceled for a long time. You had On Location, which is a company they bought to do kind of VIP um, things for, you know, the Super Bowl. You could get a VIP access, all this type of stuff. That all got canceled. That all went out the window. Professional bull riding didn't come back for a long time. UFC even had to take a, a very brief hiatus. Mind you, they were the shortest hiatus in professional sports, but still, they still had to, you know, cancel some shows and cancel some things for about a month or so. It, what in the world could have possibly happened to make it so that in 2021, they're like, you know what? We're gonna go ahead and do the IPO, right? Wouldn't Wall Street have less appetite? Wouldn't investors have less appetite? Well, again, that leads into market conditions. Market conditions are key for IPOs, especially in this type of market. And that's really what we're going to cover next. Because again, 2019 was a bad time for, for Endeavor. And institutional investors weren't biting. It, it's hard initially to think why would in 2021, when they've lost more money than they did in 2019, because they had, again, not a great year in 2019. Not terrible for where they were, but still not a profitable year. 2020 is going to be far worse. 2021 still kind of, you know, still going on. Why would this work? We've got to look at market conditions. The thing about market conditions is this. I, I'm not a financial advisor. I have studied 
you know, finance, I've, I've worked financial companies in many capacities. A lot of consulting that I've done has been for financial companies. Uh, at one point, I almost had my Series 7, Series 63, uh, all that fun stuff. To become a financial advisor early on in my career, I decided not to go that route. But I know some about finance and, and the conditions and things like that. And to give you an idea of today's market conditions, all you have to do is look at things like Dogecoin and GameStop and just everything going on right? All the wildness, the craziness going on. Right now, you've got a meme cryptocurrency surging 11,000% in just 2021 alone. You had GameStop, which, you know, was a year ago trading at like $3. I, earlier before, you know, Reddit kind of ran with it, and Wall Street Bets kind of ran with it. It was at, I think, $30, something of that nature. Now it's up to 170, I think, is the, or 158, I think, is the last price. It's crazy overvaluation. <laughs> but during the pandemic, a very important thing happened where you had Robinhood and you had more younger people become retail investors. And that led to things like you know, GameStop going crazy and uh, Dogecoin, and it led to an appetite for more and more of the public to buy stocks that they think are gonna end up blowing up. Endeavor bought out the remainder of the UFC in 2021. I think it was for two reasons, one, to prevent the UFC doing its own IPO, which could have happened, and I've covered in other videos. Two, because Endeavor is now synonymous with the UFC to those retail investors. Those younger retail investors who are saying YOLO, all in on GameStop, all in on Tesla, Spy 500 calls, all that stuff. You, you ever, if you want to see what I'm talking about, go to uh, Reddit, Wall Street Bets, you get an idea of that. And if Endeavor is synonymous with the UFC, well, the UFC was the first port back during the pandemic. It was an entertainment available when many other sports and many other things were not. A lot of people were talking about some of the fights that went down. Fight Island, right? Masvidal versus Usman, especially with Masvidal's popularity surging. A lot of people were talking about that because, again, it was one of the few sports that were going on. And you had a lot of different countries across the world in lockdown. You had the U.S., parts of the U.S. in lockdown or restrictions. They got more publicity than they would have if things had been fine and the pandemic hadn't happened. Because they were the only thing on. That was a key part in the UFC racing to be the first sport back. If you're the first sport back and you've got people craving sports who normally watch football and don't really care for whatever, but now all of a sudden it's been a month and I haven't watched sports and I'm like, man, I really wish I could do something. I'm locked in my house during this pandemic. I can't go out. Or if I go out, I'm, I can't do things normally. Like what's going on? I really wish I could have something to distract me. I really wish, you know, I could watch my favorite type of sport. Well, you know what? The fights are on. 
I don't normally watch fights, but hey, they're at least hosting them. Sure, why not? We'll make it an event. We'll do a Zoom call. We'll see what's up. It's a big thing. You got the COVID bump. I talked about it when this first happened. You get a COVID bump from pay-per-view buys because so many other sports and, and competition for people's attention are gone. So Endeavor, again, buys out the remainder of the UFC. And in these crazy market conditions where you're looking at meme stocks and meme cryptocurrency, and you've got a ton of retail investor and younger investors just trying to make money. They're seeing, they're seeing people become millionaires in a matter of weeks off of some of this stuff. Multi-millionaires in some cases where it's just mind-blowing to them. They're like, how is this even possible? And they want to in on the action. They're looking for another stock to, to jump into. Well, here's Endeavor. Here's the UFC. The, the, there's a reason that Dana White tweeted out the picture of the UFC is officially public. Now, the UFC itself is not public. The UFC is a subsidiary of Endeavor. And Endeavor will have to release you know, a bunch of financial documents that will cover the UFC, which we'll get into here in a minute. But the UFC is not public. You don't own a piece of the UFC, technically. You own a piece of Endeavor, which owns the UFC. So it's, you know, all that. But there's there's a specific reason that Dana White took to Twitter to say, oh, UFC's gone public. It's official. And a lot of people ate it up. A lot of people were like, man, UFC's public? You had fighters saying, man, now I can buy shares of Endeavor. And now I'm going to get a piece of the pie. I'm going to talk to the president, Dana White. Not understanding how this works. If you want an example of how it works, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're looking at Disney, right? Owns ESPN. You can buy shares of Disney, but even if you bought a ton of shares of Disney, it doesn't mean that you can go, you know, ESPN's booming, but then other parts of Disney are not booming. It doesn't mean that your share of Disney is going to go up necessarily. Same with Endeavor. UFC could be doing super well. If the other pieces of Endeavor are not doing that well, you may get a slight return, but you're not booming like the UFC. It's not one and the same. But the way they've positioned it is to try and make it appear as one and the same as possible. And by doing that, by buying out the rest of the UFC, by positioning themselves in that way, which in their roadshow, right, they really focused on the UFC being part of their centerpiece, they went to institutional investors who then had an appetite for it. Because again, it's been, you know, a year of just with 2020, just a year of, you know, slowdown and you had that flash crash at the beginning of the pandemic and then things slowly kind of came back to life, but you had a lot of uncertainty. You had a lot of when are things gonna get back to normal? Are they ever gonna get back to normal? Then you finally had vaccines and now there's been all this pent up demand and the economies of the world's and especially the U.S., who is now really cranking out vaccinations, is going to start booming again because you've got so much pent-up demand that's been in there where people haven't been able to do these things. They got stimulus money. They got other things, but they weren't able to do what they normally were able to do. They, you know, A lot of jobs went away. Now they're starting to come back. You're going to have an explosion of demand. And those institutional investors see this as, okay, 2019, we got burned. And it wasn't a fun time with the unicorn IPOs. But now all this pandemic stuff's happened. 
you guys are, you know, one and the same with the UFC in terms of a perception standpoint for so many of these retail investors and just average investors, schmoes. You know what? We'll go ahead and buy it at, at you know, $24, which again is much lower, keep in mind, much lower than their original share price at 30 to $32 back in 2019. But okay, we'll go ahead and buy it, buy it at $24 a share and, and we'll go for it. And again, you know, you got to wonder if the options to exercise the UFC IPO hadn't come due this year, if Endeavor would have made the move to buy out the UFC and still gone through with the IPO. Because it's totally feasible that they would have liked to ask for a higher target share price. But still, they knew they could pull the trigger this time. They knew the institutional investors had an appetite for it. And they knew the way the market is right now, which is, you know, crazy stuff that don't rely much on fundamentals, which won't break down next. They knew they could get away with it despite their fundamentals. So that's why you have the Endeavor IPO happening now to prevent the UFC IPO so that they can really control the revenue of the UFC, which they desperately need since all of their other pieces are still, you know, ramping back up and they are deep in the red from last year, but then also because appetite was there, pent up demand. You knew there was going to be an explosion as things started to get back to normal. And that's what's happening now, at least in the US. So that's why they pulled the trigger now. Okay, so let's talk about Endeavor's fundamentals, right? Looking at the fundamentals of the company, they are valuing themselves at $10 billion. To break this down a little bit, right? You look at own sports properties, which is the section that UFC would fall under for Endeavor. And they've got a Euro basketball league and professional bull riding. And when you look at all, all in that umbrella under own sports properties, and when you look at those numbers, Euro sports league didn't really do much and, and PBR didn't do much. So you know, the majority of all of that is, is the UFC, at least on the revenue side. Probably on the cost side, too, because they didn't have too many events for the other two. But most, probably 90% or so of the, of the own sports properties numbers are the UFC. You look at their other divisions, and they didn't make a lot of profit in pretty much any of the other divisions that they list in the prospectus. At least not in 2020, because as we mentioned, it focuses so much on live events that you know they had endeavor streaming they had they had some profitability here and there but for the most part not a lot so the fact that they have jumped to 10 billion dollars in their valuation that's really because they've bought out the remainder of the ufc and that you know you can't say that it's endeavors is valued at 10 billion dollars because of the UFC, but you could say that probably Endeavor nine, maybe eight or $9 billion of that 10 billion evaluation is because of the UFC, which is crazy to think about because in 2016, the UFC was valued at $4 billion when Endeavor first bought it. And even the past couple of years, we've heard, you know, six or $7 billion thrown around for how valuable the UFC is. But they've essentially this part added on, I don't know how 
unless I'm missing something, which I really don't think I am, I'm pretty sure that they've added on another billion dollars at least to the valuation of the UFC just within the past year. And yeah, they've had some success because of, of you know, the COVID bump and being the first sport back and all that. But that's, I mean, that's a pretty big, pretty big bump. So that that's a huge, very, very lofty, high valuation. Then you look at their, you know, cash burn rate and what they've been doing in 2020. And this is from an article from Forbes that focused on Endeavor's IPO, um, written by, let's see here, by David Trainer. And you look at their 2020 cash burn rate, it's negative $1.5 billion, which means that if they had the same you know, cash burn rate in 2021 as they did in 2020, they'd only have seven or eight months of runway before they'd shut down, right? Which means that hypothetically, in the next three months, Endeavor goes bankrupt, according to their cash burn rate. Now, obviously, things have started to open up. Um, they have done the IPO, so they've raised money there. So that's not the case here. But that just shows you how much of a short runway Endeavor had coming into to all of this, right? And it shows you how much financial trouble they were in. And they were in financial trouble before the pandemic. They were in the red before the pandemic. As I mentioned, they were a unicorn IPO. They had acquired so many companies. They had a lot of revenue, but not a lot of profit because they just kept spending it all on acquisitions and, and getting more debt and leveraging more debt to purchase these, these companies that they thought would eventually then turn profitable. Super, super heavy debt leveraged company in 2019. And it was a problem when they had to pull the IPO then. Then 2020 happens, which is very, very bad for a company like Endeavor. And now we get to 2021, where things are going to get better. But the real question is, are they going to get better than 2019? And that's really up in the air. There's there's pent up demand, as I mentioned, for not only stock, but for, you know, lots of things. I'm sure a lot of people want to do more live events, want to go outside more as they get vaccinated, all of that. That's just natural. So you can expect this year could be a good one, especially on the, you know, tail end in Q3 and Q4, and, and that might lead in 2020, but it's still a question. It's not guaranteed that they're going to have a better year than 2019. It's pretty much guaranteed they're going to have a better year than 2020, but how much of a better year is still unknown. And with their burn rate, that's a very big problem. They, they need to have good years from here on out. So... Another you know, issue with this is in their prospectus, they really are looking at just insane growth in the next you know, several years. In this Forbes article, what, what Trainer did, which I highly recommend, is he you know, goes through all of the ratios, looks at the compound annual growth rate projections, uh, does the net operating profit after tax calculations, does discounted cash flow, which is huge in terms of working backwards to try and figure out what share should be and stuff like that. And he ends up at looking, you know, at, at a situation where in one of his scenarios, and which I would deem to be the more in line, and, and as he labels it in line with industry, and I would agree that looking at his numbers, that this is far more realistic than what Endeavor has projected, at least from what I've seen, 
He's saying that Endeavor's worth $8 a share today. You know, based on the fundamentals. And I would say based on the fundamentals, that is probably near accurate. Maybe a little bit higher. I I had run some calculations and I think I got 11 something. But I mean, still, you could, uh, depending on what you tweak there, $8, 11 is kind of all in the same ratio. That's significantly lower than what, you know, Endeavor's trading at. It's less than half. It's it's a third in in the case of David's discounted cash flow analysis. So the question then becomes: Can Endeavor turn around these fundamentals so that they can actually, you know, make money and and with their other entities as well, not just not just the UFC, but their other groups? Can they actually make money and make profit to justify the share price and then? We talk about market conditions. And and one thing I will say, again, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not a fin- finance expert, but I have worked in the industry in some form or fashion for you know, the better part of the past decade. And right now, fundamentals don't seem to matter much at all for almost any stock. So much of the share price is baked in. The amount of times I've seen a company beat earnings where, you know, Wall Street analysts say this is our estimate of where the earnings per share will be and then they beat those earnings by you know five ten percent or they miss earnings by five ten percent and the stock just goes the complete opposite way of what you would think because it's much more about how the retail investors are feeling and and just the overall greed of the market right now the fundamentals it's it's been a disconnect for a while now between fundamentals and where the actual share price is, but it's really with the rise of Robinhood and so many of these retail platforms, it's only grown wider. So it's much more about perception, at least at the moment, than it is about actual core fundamentals supporting that perception. Often this leads to a bubble, and I think there's a good argument to be made. We might be headed towards a bubble in certain industries, but you know, with Endeavor, that's the perception of them being synonymous with the UFC is a key reason to why those fundamentals are ignored by the general public. And a key reason as to why they were able to, you know, get the price that they did for their IPO from the institutional investors and why you see their stock price now that they've hit the institution, you know, they've cleared the institutional investors. So now they've hit the general public. Now you see their stock price go up, which we'll talk about here next. But that is all important because if you are looking at buying this stock, which again, I cannot give you financial advice. I'm not a regulated financial advisor, all of that. And I'm not going to give you advice on this. I'm, I'm going to keep this out of that. But the fundamentals for Endeavor right now are very poor. Fundamentals for the UFC are great, but the UFC is just one piece in the Endeavor cog. And yes, they will get more of the UFC's revenue now, which again has ramifications we'll talk about in a bit, but these fundamentals and, and that valuation 
are, are just kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum. But when it comes to IPOs and when it comes to the market, fundamentals right now don't seem to be that big of a deal. So that's why if you look at these numbers and you're saying this is crazy, like how can somebody that has eight months runway be valued at $10 billion and with that much debt, like what's going on? You're not alone. That's just the way the market works right now. So let's talk about that for a minute. Endeavor share price opened up at $24, continued to rise over the past week, hit a high of, according to Yahoo Finance, hit a high of $30.81. And then yesterday closed at $27.95. So still rose nearly $4. What does that tell us? That tells us that the average Joe investor liked the stock enough. They wanted to buy it. There was enough demand that it rose the price. And yeah, it hit a high of 30 and went back down, but that's to be expected. The thing about IPO pricing and, and the actual, you know, stock price the next week, two weeks sometimes, is the target share price versus what it ends up being. It's always a roller coaster the first couple days, weeks things like that. It's always a roller coaster. I have yet to see one be pretty consistent where it doesn't kind of, you know, the first couple of days gotta go everywhere. And then, yeah, I, I, well, that's not true. I've seen a couple like that, but in general, especially in this market environment, in this market, I, it's very much a roller coaster. Now the price went up, right? And a lot of people initially thought Oh, hey, that's great, right? I saw a lot of tweets. I saw a lot of, you know, people talking about articles being like, yeah, Endeavor IPO is a hit, it's a success. I disagree. And here's why. Gotta go back to the IPO process itself, right? What's the core purpose of a company doing an IPO? To raise money, raise capital. So, they're selling to the institutional investors through that equity group. If the price goes up, that means they generally priced it too low. When you're doing an IPO, you want it to be about even, maybe a little bit less, not terribly less, but a little bit less, usually break even. Why? Because as a company, you are trying to maximize the value that you get by selling your shares to the institutional investors. You want to have priced it correctly. If you price it too low, say I price, let's say Endeavor priced it at $20, well, then it goes up to 30. That means the institutional investors are really reaping that initial reward because they're, you know, the first ones to get the benefit when it first hits the public. And this could be days, could be a couple of weeks sometimes, but the the institutional investors are the ones that really, you know, are the ones reaping the rewards there. So if you come in like Endeavor did at $24, then it goes up to 30 or so, about a 25% increase around there or something like that. I, 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 you know, again, I think it jumped even higher. That might've been just where it ended for the particular day, but, um, may have even gotten higher than that. 
And, you know, if that happens, that means that you left money on the table, essentially. You could have come in at 30 bucks. And then you would have gotten $30 per share from the institutional investors. You don't, you don't get that $6 profit per share that's happened once it hits the market. You get what you've sold it to the institutional investors and the retail investors at, at least those initial shares. So in a lot of ways, it's not a successful IPO because you never want to see it go up that much, 20 some percent, because you, you mispriced it. And it's hard, right? That's not something... You know, you you are a, a company that probably doesn't know exactly how to price those things, and you're trying to negotiate a price with investment banks and, and banks that have done this for hundreds of years, decades. You know, it, it's a especially recently have adopted, you know, and I say decades because given the you know rise in the way that this has all changed in the past several decades with the rise of uh, the internet and technology and online brokerages, all of that, you, you've got well-experienced people and then you've got, you know, your internal groups trying to negotiate a price that you think as a company will hopefully get break even when it hits the market because that means you priced it right. Or if it's a little bit less, well, that sucks for the institutional investors because they take a little bit of loss, right? But still good. The only reason you don't want it to be too low is because what we talked about with Peloton and Uber and Lyft, right? They they didn't feel the the pain of that initially. The institutional investors did. Same case here. You want to be able to, you know, have a, a good relationship with these uh, institutional investors and investment banks because you may need help with again more debt, uh, you know, and loans or issuing new share, all that stuff, issuing new products, all lots of stuff. But the main thing is, is that you never want it to go surging high because that means you left money on the table. And again, we're not talking about, it's, we're talking about three or $4 a share. So we're not talking about a, a terribly missed call here of like, oh, like you really messed this up, but Endeavor did leave money on the table. It's as simple as that. Especially if it ends up, you know, settling at 28 bucks, 29 bucks a share or something of that nature, you left money on the table. If it goes back down to 24 and settles around there, well, then okay. You you had a surge and you missed some profit, but you know, all right. You about evened out. It happens. But if it stays 28, 29, or it goes back up to 30 and kind of like kind of settles in that range, well, then you missed out on some money. Money that Endeavor desperately needs. So Yes, a lot of people are calling this a, a success for the IPO, but those people are mostly Wall Street people. They're investment banks. They're investors. They're publications that work for investment banks or investors or, you know, <laughs> private investors. It, it's a, those are the people that call it a success because they made a profit. You know, not, again, a massive one here, but... You could best believe if Endeavor, you know, entered at 24 and then ended the day at 48, 50 dollars, they'd be calling this a smashing success. Well, yeah, they would. But Endeavor wouldn't. <laughs> now, again, it's it settles up there and you know, you have company stock, your employees have company stock, and it's never a bad thing for it to go up that much. But because you're trying to raise money, and that's the purpose of this, 
you want an IPO price to end up at break even or maybe a little less. That's the goal. So here, I would say it's not a, not a true success for Endeavor. I say they they mispriced it. They, they lost out on some money. That's how I feel about the share price. We'll see where it ends in the next week or so. We'll keep an eye on it. But if it settles up in the $28 range, which I think it might, we'll see over the next couple of days, then yeah, they lost out on some money. Some other key important factors here. Endeavor is, in, in terms of voting and, and the way that they've issued these shares, they've issued five classes of shares. This is extremely important. Even if somebody owned all of the public shares out there that they've issued, because of the five classes of shares that they've issued and who got you know some of the higher level shares with different voting rights, which is a thing, right? You issue a certain class of share, they may be worth X amount of votes. Endeavor is going to retain control of their company. You could gather all of the other public shares out there right now. And because of the way that the class structure is set up for these the other five classes of shares, and how many, you know, key executive people like Ari Emanuel, Patrick Whitesell have of those multiple voting rights shares. Endeavor is at no risk of somebody, you know, doing a hostile takeover or, you know, some of these, you know, these outside guys coming in and buying up a bunch and trying to, you know, make a lot of noise to get a company to invest a particular way. That's not going to happen here. They are going to retain control. You literally can't buy up enough shares to change that right now. That is a key piece of this. In terms of the operations of the UFC, I don't think much is going to change at all, honestly. Dana White has a really good relationship with Ari Emanuel. It's no secret if you look through some of the pieces uh, that they've done uh, on Ari, on Dana, and, and where they've mentioned their relationship. Um, if you look at how Ari seems to view Dana, at least from what we can tell in interviews and things of like that, like they're going to want him to run the ship. He's, it is almost undeniable at this point that he is the face of the brass part of that company, right? The he's the he's pro wrestling terms. He's the Vince McMahon of the UFC. He's not going anywhere. He's too recognizable. He's too much a part of the brand of the image of all that. He's going nowhere. And they're not going to want to mess with him too much. They're not going to want to make him unhappy so that when his contract is up, he says, you know what? I'm out of here. It's done. This is stupid. No, they want to keep him around. He is a personality that polarizes a lot of people in MMA, but nonetheless, he is a, a personality that is key to the UFC's brand right now, especially given what's going on where Endeavor needs the UFC to continue being successful and continue generating the types of revenue that they've generated over the past couple of years. You may see more cost-cutting measures. In fact, I would almost guarantee you're going to see more cost-cutting measures. I believe that. Um, what that looks like specifically, that's hard to tell. Probably some internal corporate cuts if they can afford them. Um, you'll also look at, you know, getting more contender series fighters that are coming on, you know, 
12 and 12 contracts and then pushing out of higher higher ranked fighters that aren't going to make a run for the title or you know aren't a big enough name that they shouldn't be getting in the UFC's eyes like 60 to show 60 to win type of stuff. They'll they'll keep cutting those people. They'll keep cutting people like you know Junior Dos Santos who yes had been on a losing streak so it's not that shocking but uh, Alistair Overeem who had you know won several and then lost to Volkov but cost an insane amount of money compared to a lot of people. Unfortunately, I think, you know, next time Arlovsky loses, it, it's hard to say because they will still want to keep around some of the really good company men. And I believe Arlovsky fits into that mold. Um, but, you know, they're definitely looking at cutting, cutting any cost that they can while live events ramp up, while they need to get more money in the bank to help support Endeavor. Because, with Endeavor owning the entire UFC, Endeavor's going to look at them as, as, a, as a lifeline more than anything else right now. As a, we need this money to survive. Also means that they're going to clamp down harder on, you know, any unionization efforts that come through. I don't know that any will particularly, you know, particularly pop up right now, but they're, you know, th- this is not the time for them to welcome a union or welcome more fighter pay. They need fighter costs to be as low as they are, or even lower, so they can extract more money from the UFC, Endeavor does. So they're going to actively work to do that. They, I imagine, would do everything they legally can to quash any unionization or any you know, type of association forming right now. And it's part of the reason you're also looking at, you know, Derek Lewis getting the fight over Nganu and you know, other contract negotiations having issues. It's it's going to keep happening. And they're going to hold firm because the UFC will get told from their parent company, like, you've got to keep costs at this level. You can run the ship any way you want. This is how I imagine the conversation would go. You can run the way to ship any way you want, but you got to keep costs at this level. And then the UFC internally will be tasked with doing that. And the easiest way is the independent contractor payments to fighters. So expect more of that. Other than that, I'm not seeing any other, you know, huge things from Endeavor um, coming, you know, down the pipe now that they've fully bought the UFC. Most most of what they were doing anyway is still going to stay. I don't think Silver Lake or KKR objected too much to anything or was really adamant about certain things being run a certain way that Endeavor disagreed with. So I expect it to be business as usual for the most part, except for cost-cutting measures. That's the only thing I expect to ramp up. Everything else, same same old, same old. So no, Dana's not going anywhere. He's not getting fired. He's not quitting anything like that. And when Endeavor does their you know, public earnings calls and sends out you know their public disclosures, you'll see some UFC numbers, but they're going to be opaque. And what I mean by that, again, is own sports properties is going, you're going to see all the numbers for own sports properties. So it's going to be hard to see what specifically is UFC versus what's the Euro Basketball League and PBR. And you can know that the majority of the money of that section is definitely going to be coming from the UFC. And we can look at a lot of those numbers and say, I bet UFC is about this much. But in terms of true exact numbers, we're, we're still not going to see those. It's not the UFC going public. It is not 
Let me repeat that. It is not the UFC going public. That would have yielded much more, you know, true numbers we could look at. You'd have some accounting practices do some of their magic, sure. But I mean, you would have true UFC only numbers that we'd be able to dissect and go through. This will be, yeah, we'll gain some numbers. Yes, they'll call some things out that we'll call attention to, but it's going to be hard to extract it all. And I would imagine Nash is probably, John Nash is probably going to be able to extract most of it because of his experience and some of the sources he has. But I'm going to try my best to do that as well. But it's, don't expect true blue accurate numbers, especially on like, we're not getting pay-per-view buys that are that are completely accurate. We're not getting, oh, this is how much money they made in this amount of year from the UFC alone. This is what their costs were. Now we're going to have these weird combined numbers that we'll try and dissect. And that'll kind of be that. So... That's what you're looking at through this entire ordeal. Before we wrap up the Endeavor topic, again, if you've got any questions about this, let me know. I hope I've explained it in a, a satisfactory way. Let me know in the comments if I explained it well enough that you guys understand what's happening here and all these different aspects of it. If I missed a piece that you want me to cover or some part of you know this whole IPO that you have a burning question about, let me know and I'll make sure to cover it in the next episode um, because, or rather two episodes from now, because I'm doing an interview in the next episode, which I will talk about later. Um, but let me know uh, and I will certainly cover that as well. I know it's a lot to digest, especially if you're not into finance, but it's important to know the key pieces of these things because as time goes on, you're gonna see a lot of disinformation. You're gonna see a lot of, oh, UFC's gone public. UFC's done this. And oh, this was such a huge success, or this was a big thing. And it's important to understand at least the high level basics so that you're more well informed on what this means, especially if one day we do end up with a UFC IPO, which I think is still on the table for down the line, not short term by any means. But, you know, this info will help then too, because this process is how pretty much all IPOs work. And right now, with the way the market conditions are, if we get not UFC IPO five years down the line, 10 years down the line, who knows what the market looks like then? So it's it's a whole thing. So let me know in the comments how you feel about all that. And I hope I've explained that well. All right, last thing I wanna quickly touch on here, cause I'm losing my voice a little bit, um, is had a request to go into uh, UFC live event financials and see a breakdown of things. So the best example I have of this is from the UFC antitrust lawsuit where we had slides that were shown unredacted. Um, John Nash from Bloody Elbow, I know I reference him a lot, but it's hard not to when the dude is the guru of MMA business, um, was able to capture that information and put it in a written piece. Uh, so if if you wanna look at it, just search UFC event costs. It's Zufa finances, the, the economics of a UFC event, um, that type of thing. But to break it down for you now here, this slide revealed the dates of certain events and the entire event cost, fighter fighter expenses, and then the event revenue. And so the events listed were um, UFC Live, Vera versus Jones on March 21st of 2010, UFC 11, or I'm sorry, UFC 111, uh, U UFC Fight Night Florian versus Gomi, UFC Fight Night uh, Dos Anjos versus Alvarez back in 2016, and then UFC 200, those were the ones listed. Now, the interesting thing about this is when you look at event costs, right, for some of these, 
that there is a huge disparity in terms of event costs and revenue and, and fighter compensation to an extent. Well, yeah, I'd say yes, also to fighter compensation between fight night versus pay-per-view. So let's take, for example, UFC fight night, Florian versus Gomi on March 31st, 2010. $1.2 million in event costs, $3 million in revenue. These are all approximate, by the way. And then $722,000 in fighter expenses. So you made a profit. You made around $1 million from there, you know, something like that. So 33% profit margin, something like that. Not bad. It's good stuff, especially for a fight night, right? And a lot of that event revenue is, is going to come from, yes, broadcast, although this was 2010, so broadcasts were a little bit different, um, but was going to come from live gate, all that type of stuff. You still made a pay. Around that same time period, look at a pay-per-view. UFC 111. Event costs skyrocket up to $6 million and fighter expenses jumped to $3.7 million. And right, that's because you've got pay-per-view title defenses. You've got, you know, higher ranked fighters fighting on a stacked card. So that's going to, you know, all add up. But the event revenue just, you know, we're talking $3 million for the fight night from Florian Gomi. It goes up to $28 million for UFC 111. That's massive, right? Because now you're talking about a, uh, what is that, $18 million in revenue? And you're talking about a huge profit margin where your total expenses were less than, you know, almost a third, a little over a third of your total, you know, total revenue. It's not bad. <laughs> so, you know, that shows the disparity there. That was 2010. Let's jump to 2016. UFC Fight Night, Dos Anjos versus Alvarez had 1.5 million in expenses. So still, you know, a little bit more expensive than Florin versus Gomi six years later, but still around the same ballpark. Uh, fighter expenses jump up now to 1.9 million. Now this was because uh, 2016, again, great year for, this was during International Fight Week where you had the three events back-to-back. So you had um, Alvarez versus Dos Anjos, uh, Gedalia versus Jan Jacek, and then um, I forget what the, oh yeah, uh, it was, Duh, UFC 200. So huge stacked international fight week. International fight week I really wish I could have gone to. Just killed it. So you look at that and, you know, the event revenue there is still only $3 million or so. It's, it's actually $40,000 or so or $32,000 less than Florian versus Gomi. So they actually lost money in that event, technically. Because between your fighter expenses 1.9, your event 1.5, then your you know event revenue is only three million dollars. You actually lost money there. That's important. A lot of people are, are thinking that all of these you know every single UFC event you're getting profit. Nope, not always. This is concrete numbers that prove that <laughs> you're generally getting a profit, but in this particular case, no. But then you look at the pay per view, UFC 200, right? $12 million in event costs alone. So highest by far of these numbers, uh, 12.8, so closer to 13 million. Then 19 million in fighter expenses. And remember UFC 200 was just an absolute stacked card. You had originally too, you would have had Jones, uh, John Jones versus Cormier. I mean, the very original, the original, original 
idea was was Nate versus Connor too was on this card too. And then you had Nunez fighting Tate. You had, you know, Brock Lesnar fighting Mark Hunt. It was just, man, it was one of the most stacked cards ever. Every prelim was just a big name guy. It was amazing. You had the you had the gold freaking octagon though. That's what most people remember. But you know, fighter expenses near 20 million here. So total event expenses again 33 million or so. But your event revenue again 55 million dollars. And we know, you know, from our estimates and from what we've seen it sold over a million pay-per-views even with all the last minute cancellations with John Jones versus Cormier and all that, still had Lesnar on the card, still ends up selling over a million. So you end up with a revenue of 55 million dollars. So you're still making 25 million dollars in revenue there. Now, we don't have any numbers past 2016 because the antitrust lawsuit, you know, stops there. But this gives you an idea of a breakdown of, of the expenses there because event costs are going to skyrocket for bigger pay-per-views. You're going to have way more promotion, way more advertising, all that type of stuff. Fighter costs, obviously, you got champions, you got higher ranked fighters. They're all going to command a much larger purse than... Um, you know, fight night guys. And an important thing from what was, you know, what we know in terms of disclosed payouts, right? Because the internal payouts that Zufa had is different than what we see in disclosed payouts, which is also a key thing we need to remember. And we don't get a lot of disclosed payouts now anymore because a lot of commissions just yanked them, which sucks. But when we had disclosed payouts of, oh, this was their salary and this is what they got on whatever. Keep in mind for, you know, non-title fight night things for uh, the Jones versus Vera one, right? Uh, you had $70,500 of discrepancy where this is what they said were disclosed payouts and this is what they actually showed in terms of, of fighter expenses internally. But then you're looking at, you know, the lightweight title fight for UFC uh, Fight Night Dos Anjos versus Alvarez, $573,000. Have nearly $600,000 in fighter compensation was undisclosed because the actual disclosed number was 1.3 million or so. And then what they have internally listed for fighter compensation is closer to 1.9. It's over 1.9. So again, huge discrepancy there. UFC 200, that's the big one. So when we're talking about big events, which is what Mark asked for, even with the disclosed payouts we had for UFC 200, $12.8 million in undisclosed pay. Now, the only thing I can say to all this is it's a lot like, you know, again, when they talk about locker room bonuses, when they talk about letters of agreement, all that stuff, it's kind of like the thing that I I draw the attention to is, is similar in pro wrestling again with like WrestleMania, right? Everybody wants to wrestle on WrestleMania because you get a massive payday and you get some big bonuses and all this other stuff. Same type of thing here. UFC 200 was a massive event for the company, was huge. So disclosed pay was one thing, but then they ended up paying out just a ridiculous amount of extra money there. Like over significantly higher than what they said was just the disclosed pay. More than double. No, I'm sorry, not more than double. Close to double, something like that. Yeah, little little under close to double what they disclosed. They paid out totally. So looking at event costs for these big pay-per-views, when champions talk about like 
and you have the Israel Adesanya talk about, yeah, they took care of me, right? And you have you've seen some interviews where champions or or bigger name fighters say, no, no, they've always took care of me. That's part of the reason is if you're fighting on big events like Adesanya is or your champion, you get a lot more undisclosed pay. I know we see one million terms of disclosed pay, all this, but you look at the bonuses, the locker room stuff, they're getting a lot more on the back end. But the fight night guys and most other guys, that's not the case. You may get some here, some there, depends, but in general, that's not the case. So those are all important notes for a UFC live event cost because again, setting it up, promotion, all that other stuff, pales in comparison to what you know their revenue can bring in for any particular pay-per-view. For fight nights, they're not making a lot of profit. And I think that's also part of the reason why you'll notice that they're talking about pay-per-views they're going to big cities. But they were asked recently, Dana was asked recently about going to fight nights and other, you know, are you gonna bring fight nights back to certain areas things? And he said, eh, we'll see, we'll see. Wanna have full capacity, That's why he wants full capacity. Because those live fight nights, they require good gate in order to make those events profitable. But the pay-per-views, that's completely different. Pay-per-views, yeah, you want that gate, of course, especially now with their new ESPN deal. But, you know, that's where you get way more revenue. It's where you make it way bigger thing. Get a much larger profit margin. So I think that's why right now they're going for pay-per-views, they are going to different cities and only for pay-per-views. Because if you host those fight nights in the Apex, guess what? You don't get the gate, but you also don't have to pay nearly as much an event cost. And with the new ESPN broadcast deal, you're probably making a profit. And I'm sure they've worked that out. So I wouldn't expect fight nights to return to other cities until, you know, COVID's really ramped down and they can really, you know, sell out crowds fully. That's what Dana was referencing right there is those types of numbers. Because I'm, if you look at, again, 2010 to 2016, the same discrepancies are there in terms of, of revenue between and, and costs between fight nights and between pay-per-views. I would imagine they're still very similar today. Maybe a little bit different, but if they hold true for six years, they're probably gonna hold true for another, you know, at least be in the same ballpark. And yes, they had a lot of cost-cutting measures when, Endeavor came in, so it's possible the event costs are lower, but you're still not getting a ton of profit there. And most, again, most of those fight nights, you you rely on that gate money much more to get a higher profit per event. So that's what's going on there. So Mark, I hope that gives you an idea of what some of these bigger events do in terms of costs and revenue um, compared to smaller events and you know how that all works from a financial perspective. All right, with that in mind, guys, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. Again, let me know in the comments if what I said makes sense. If you need clarification on anything, let me know. I'll be happy to talk you through. I hope I explained it well enough um, with the Endeavor IPO stuff and all of that. And let me know if I missed any any topic. Let me know your thoughts on it. Are you guys going to buy the stock? Are you going to stay away from it? Is it even on your radar? Do you really think it's going to change things? internally for the UFC, all that. Let me know your thoughts and feelings on anything I've covered today. Always appreciate you guys watching, uh, listening on, you know, Podcast Addict, Anchor, all of that. If you're watching on YouTube, 
give a like and subscribe and a bell notification if you haven't already. If you have, you know, thank you so much. I do this show for you guys. And yeah, until next week, which by the way, is going to be an interview, very special interview um, lined up right now. I will make sure it's officially confirmed for that day. We don't have any cancellations before I put it out there, but look for Twitter um, and possibly Instagram, but definitely on Twitter through my account and through the body lock Twitter to know who I'm going to be interviewing for next week. And that's probably going to be most, if not the entire episode. So that will happen. Then if you've got any other questions, concerns, anything like that, hit me up. And until next time, y'all get money.